Welcome back for the second podcast from Altruist. This event occurred on May 4th, 2019, and in the first episode, we heard presentations from three speakers covering Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. In this episode, we will continue with a panel discussion answering questions that were posed by the audience and submitted on note cards. You will hear from Ryan Miller, who is hosting the morning discussion, followed by Amanda Henderson, Rabbi Brian Feld, and Ishmael Eckwood. Let's join the discussion. Okay. These are great questions. And if you have any others throughout the course of today, uh, we will not have time, by the way, in this setting. We'll have about 45 minutes um, during this session. Uh, and I'm not going to be able to get to all these because as you all know what happens when you ask a question, then there's like 5,000 questions on top of that question. And when you have three speakers, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, I'm going to ask, uh, the first question is going to be a bit dark, okay? A little, little, little deep and dark. Here we go. And it's going to be to addressing all three of these Abrahamic religions. What breaks your heart the most within your own religion and your perception of your religion? What breaks your heart? Yeah, <laughs> I can go first if you want. Um, oh, there's so much. You're the brave one. I think, well, uh, for Christianity, that we have such a reputation for, for hypocrisy and judgmentalism that when you think about Christianity in the United States and 2019, um, you think of the people who are using their religion to harm others, um, to discriminate against people. Um, I, I grew up in the world of focus on the family and, um, actually my in-laws worked at focus on the family and it just breaks my heart because I feel like it's so counter to the message of love and inclusion that was Jesus. And, and so I feel real sadness about that. Also, of course, the centuries of violence that have been done in the name of Christianity from um, the Crusades to the Holocaust to slavery and, and um, segregation. So, yeah, there's a lot. Okay. Uh, can I go next? Is that all right? Of course. Okay. So first of all, we're all friends. I don't know if you know that, but we've known each. We've all known each other for many years, and um, we like each other. We love each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I'll share a couple of things that break my heart. Um, first of all, um, the Jewish people are still in the shadow of the Holocaust. We're still. In the sh- we're still feeling the effect. We're st- we're still we're still uh, we're still a traumatized people. It may not look that way because, by and large, Jews are resilient and have, you know, are socially and financially generally successful. But th- there's a deep sense. There's a there's a deep embodiment of trauma that still affects us. And so, that's you know, there's nothing that we can do about that except recognize it and learn how to heal and invite. Um, our, our non-Jewish beloveds around us to help us heal, but we are still working with that. The other thing is that one of the most powerful, you know, acts of resilience and recreation of the Jewish people in the late 19th and 20th centuries was um, um, was um, was Zionism. Was the um, was uh, 
saying, we will be a people like other peoples and claim the right of sovereignty and self-determination and all of the, the possibilities that come with being senior in your own space in terms of cultural and spiritual and political self-expression. The tragedy is that, um, so, so it's both a triumph and a great tragedy. You know, you can call the tragedy the occupation, the um, the, um, the second-class political status of Palestinians in Israel proper and the non-political status of, pa- of Palestinians in the occupied territories. And so, you know, you know what cost of, of the reclamation of Jewish dignity at, at, the, at, at the expense of, of, of another people? And, um, and the direction that um, the politics in Israel is going with the political support of our current government is a deep tragedy to me, and I would say to most Jews, even though most Jews are pretty quiet about it, because um, Israel is such a passionate and existential issue among us that it's like you can yell at your brother in the family, but if someone outside the family yells at your brother, well, you're going to be the first to, to, to defend him, even if you disagree with what your brother's doing. And so... I guess what I want to ask all of you is compassion for Jews as we wrestle with this combined triumph and tragedy, this post-Holocaust triumph and tragedy of our people. Okay. Um, For me as a Muslim, um, what breaks my heart when I look at the Muslim community or the Muslim world, if you want, is... Um, the ignorance that I see in many, many Muslim-majority countries about education, um, oppression of women, and so on, which is not rooted in the religion itself. It is tribalism. It is culturally um, re- culturally related. But you can see that many Muslim countries, majority countries, struggle with um, this concept of equality, um, education for all, and so on. So this breaks my heart if I look at the Muslim world. Another thing that breaks my heart is for Muslims, when Muslims talk about their history, they have usually this romantic view of the history that everything was perfect that they did throughout history. Um, All the wars that they fought were justified and they were always oppressed by others and so on. And, um, but if you read even Muslim scholars, you will see that Muslim scholars debated among themselves about that and they said, this is not right. We made mistakes in the um, we made mistakes in the past. Um, even Muslims fought against Muslims, and they they killed uh, each other. So you can see that Muslims are just human beings, just as others, and they make mistakes. But the mistakes that they make are not rooted in the religion. The, root, the religion does not tell them to go and to kill others. Um, what was the second part of the question? <laughs> Here's the second part. So how about let's flip that? What most excites you? First off within your own religious tradition moving forward? And some of that was probably answered as you were talking. But then two, and more specifically, as an integrated, collaborative Abrahamic faiths coming together, what excites you moving forward in the 21st century? Okay, great question. So I don't have much time to think about. So (laughs) Um, I would say what excites me that um, Muslims coming to the West, um, there is a saying in Islam which says the sun will come from the west to the east. 
Okay, and um, many Islamic scholars they say that this is an interpretation of that there will, will be a reform, a renaissance for Muslims uh, intellectually that will start in the West. And I think for Muslim scholars being educated in the West, coming here and learning in the West um, will help and inspire um, the Middle East and other parts of the Muslim world. Because some, the Muslim world, which is the Middle East and the Far East and so on, many people there, they look to the West. They look to scholars here in the West <clears throat> for new ideas. And it inspires me to say <clears throat> to see that Muslim scholars now in the West, they come up with new interpretations. Um, because if you look into the Muslim world after the 12th century, actually there were no new interpretations. They were stuck with interpretations after the 12th century, and we're seeing that right now coming from the West, and that um, excites me a lot um, for the future. Um, in Christianity, I think that one of, in, in America, I should caveat, is um, there's a decline in institutionalized Christianity. And I actually see this as a great opportunity um, to be more creative and less concerned with what I call butts and pews Christianity and more <laughs> more about how we're living in the world Christianity and thinking creatively about how we're forming community and connection. And I think that there's a lot stirring and a lot happening. And a lot of people talk about the the 500 year cycles of reformation and people in Christian circles will talk about that. We're in one of those periods within Christianity um, of great upheaval. And I, I think that that, that great upheaval brings a lot of creative opportunities and freedom that for me is so much more in line with the spirit of God. Um, so I'm excited about that in terms of interfaith relationships. Um, I think that we have so many more opportunities for encounter today um, that people we know, and I, I might be in a little bubble that I, I get to be friends um, and in and, and real, real friendship with people who are of different religious traditions. And uh, we talk about it more. And my hope is that we can talk about it more. And that's part of the work that I love. Um, that the more we learn about different people's stories, the more our own stories are enriched. And, you know, that, that deep realization that um, our liberation is tied to one another and mutual liberation comes through knowing each other's stories and caring enough um, to stand with one another. And that is my, my deep hope and uh, enthusiasm for the future in, in relationships between our different religions. So um, the thing that most excites me about Judaism um, is well, I'll I'll I'll, I'll share this with you with a, uh, with kind of an, uh, a famous story. Um, a great um, um, nuclear physicist, a Jewish physicist by the name of Isidore Rabi, was um, um, was once asked about you know the path that he took to become such a brilliant person and to to you know win the Nobel Prize, and he said when he came home from school, unlike the um, like 
many of his, his um, the parents of his friends would say, did you, what did you learn in school today? And he said, my parents never asked me that. They always asked me, so Isidore, did you ask a good question today? Mm. Um, Jews love to take on what Islam called us. I mean, in fact, Islam called both Christianity and, 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 and Judaism the peoples of the book. Um, and, you know, I don't know how Christians responded to that, but Jews love that because we're mm-hmm. illiterate. We know we, we love reading. But my own sense is that we are the people of the question. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I most celebrate about my own socialization within Judaism and the parts of Judaism that I most celebrate is that there's a lot of openness and excitement and permission and almost an obligation to ask questions. Now, there's two ways of asking questions. There's the, there's the way of asking a question when, which you want to show that you're smarter than the person you're questioning. Like, you know, I'm, I, I'm going to put you on the spot. And then there's the question that comes from humility. And so this is... Um, like from a, sense, from a sense of not knowing and you have something to teach me. And that is the place where I feel most blessed by living in a time when uh, there is the opportunity to be in really close relationship, both collegially as well as at Judas Way professionally. I work with a lot of interfaith families and couples. So I'm working with Judaism in relationship to other faith traditions in very intimate settings. And and so, you know, the prophet Micah said, what does the Lord require of you? And this is something I think that many Christians know as well. And that's to, um, um, to pursue justice, to love compassion, and to walk humbly with your God. And so um, it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to be in relationship, um, an evolving relationship with people of other faith traditions, deep believers in those faith traditions, and to, you know, bring that sense of humility, trusting that if if I have a real conversation with Amanda or Ismael or with Ved um, or with Dilpreet, and, and we talk about things, chances are that I am going to learn something, and that's going to change the way that I relate to my Judaism, and I'll, and I'll, I'll be blessed and bigger um, for that opportunity. Jerusalem is called the City of Peace, and we've all known throughout hundreds, hundreds of years, it is not a city of peace. So here I'm going to take this question and I'm going to expand upon it. And this is, I think, uh, Rabbi Brian, you will like this because we talked about there should be some tension because we can't all just be naive and sing Kumbaya and think that all these religions are are great and wonderful. And (laughs) at the end of the day, yeah, there's no war. There's no tension. So this talks about Zionism, okay? The concepts of social justice understood in the Zionist approach in the conflict between Israel and Palestine. Let's throw Christians in there too because if you look at Jerusalem, you have... And you look at the Middle East, actually, you will find all three Abrahamic traditions throughout the years fighting over this land and what it means to be a city of peace and a city on a hill. What does Zionism look like? And uh, let's talk about the other, the other side of that. I mean, because you're, you're speaking from one perspective, I realize that, uh, but it's, uh, this is a loaded question. So let's just take a step back from that, um, that big umbrella view and get more specific within your tradition today, 21st century, knowing what we have already from the past centuries. What does it look like to be integrated with Zionism, anti-Zionism, uh, Christian siding with this side or that side? I mean, it's a mess right now. 
it is a mess. So I just want you to riff on that. And this might be like a 30 minute answer because of, yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll start. Um, and, um, you heard a bit of my perspective in my first response in terms of, you know, what grieves my heart. Um, we live in a world in which human rights are most, um, you know, human, you know, social rights, economic rights, political rights, for better or for worse, they are secured by nations. If you are a citizen, then that gives you certain rights. Um, and your nation will protect you, you know, to a certain extent. If you do not have citizenship, if you can't claim that citizenship, that belonging to a nation state, then there is nothing in this world that will protect you. The United Nations is the United Nations to the extent that it does anything, but it can only do, it can only act if countries give it permission to act. So in a world, you know, in an ideal world, there would be no nationalism. Zionism is Jewish nationalism, and Jews have learned that um, without nationalism, you have no protection if there are other groups who want to hurt you. So Jerusalem, um, so, um, you know, I wish I didn't have to give this answer. Um, uh, you know, and you know, one of the reasons that Amanda and I, you know, got to know each other was that um, as most of us rabbis in town realized that we actually stood on the same social justice, on the same side of social justice issues as most liberal Protestants, of which, you know, you know and Amanda is, is one, a liberal Protestant Clearly. leader. <laughs> and, and so that, but when it came to Israel, most liberal Protestants sided with the Palestinians and saw Israel as the oppressor. And so that, that you know, um, misalignment, that, um, that, uh, um, the, the, that misalignment between us made it really hard for us to do a lot of work because for Jews, Israel is an existential issue. Israel is, um, is, a, is a survival response, an existential response to a survival threat of the Holocaust um, and a lot of the anti-Semitism that preceded the Holocaust. So um, um, that said, there is a tremendous amount of... of um, an increasing amount of resistance and rebellion um, to the direction that the um, Israeli government, with the support of the, um, the Trump administration, is heading in right now. So, um, so a couple of other things. This, you know, that's just about Zionism. And you began with Jerusalem, which actually in Hebrew, Yerush Shalem. You know, it means it literally means city of peace. Um, so, the several times that I've been and lived in Jerusalem. Um, it felt like anything but. Um, there was a tremendous amount of tension. In fact, people talk about the Jerusalem complex where people come and, and a much greater percentage of people than in any other city take on like uh, Messiah complexes. Um, and and the, 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 um, the, uh, the, the, the religious energy in its most fanatical seems to get concentrated in Jerusalem. So I remember one time when I was there, and this was part of my, um, this was the one year I lived there during my several years of studying to be a rabbi. And we had this enormous snowstorm. Um, and everything shut down, and a lot of the trees were knocked over, and you know, no buses, no cars. And so um, 
a, a number of us who were studying together, we got together, we got our parkas on, we got our boats, and we were trudging. We thought we'd go to the old city together. And we were walking along, and there were a few people. And it just seemed that um, people were in a much lighter mood. And in fact, um, we, we, we passed a couple of, of, of um, young Palestinian boys, and they kind of playfully threw snowballs at us, saying, um, a snowball from our God to your God. And, and, you know, it felt like, it felt like, you know, when you have an inflammation, and what do you do? You put an ice pack on it. It felt like there was, like, this was God's ice pack on, 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 on the, the city of inflammation, a city of spiritual inflammation. And that, that was just my own personal experience. Um, but all of the worst things about religion, all of the worst in combination with nationalism, like Israel is a place where religion is established, contrary to our first Amendment and all of the problems that come when religion is, is allied with this power of the state that we see throughout Europe and we see throughout many of, of you know um, many countries in the Middle East. Um, this it, we have the same problems in Israel, um, and um, and so you know in a certain sense Jews have become just like everybody else, um, and um, you know there is uh, there is a lot of religious. Um, um, investment in that piece of property, and so attention gets paid to Israel in ways that it doesn't get paid to Tibet or, um, or, 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 or other countries throughout the world. Um, but, um, but there it is. And um, so that's not a, necessarily a coherent answer, but I, but I wanted to give you just a, a sense of both the personal and the spiritual and the political and um, how we're in an unredeemed world, and right now uh, we're in a, in a world of nation states. Thanks. So um, I think that one of the most important things as as a Christian and a more liberal Christian entering into conversations about Israel and Palestine, um, well, one I should name, I got to visit there in 2009 and kind of witnessed for myself and then my own personal journey was, uh, or witness narratives for myself and experience the land, honestly. Um, and then being in a rabbi clergy study group where we have really explored the issue pretty personally. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the most important things is to name that as a Christian, we come in with this real history of Christian hegemony. Um, and that was so tied up in colonialism and, and that you can't enter like the world of navigating um, the Israel-Palestinian conflict right now without hold, like we carry that with us when we walk into the space. So the two reactions of current Christians are both very troubling um, with that history. And one of those is the evangelical Christian, like fundamentalist, there's a whole strain that very much funds um, some real extremist uh, action in Israel. And you know, has a mindset that if you send all of the Jews back to Israel, that Jesus will come back. I mean, the, like that, that whole thing is so deeply troubling and disturbing um, that, you know, there's that response from Christians that we need to understand. And then the other response that happens from a lot of my um, Christian family in progressive circles that, um, go and are like, we should be standing on the side of the oppressed and the Palestinians are oppressed and we're going to do BDS. And, um, 
Everyone know what BDS means? Boycott, divestment, sanctions. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a movement. It's a worldwide movement uh, uh, in terms of boycotting, divesting, and sanctioning um, 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 Israel and Israelis. So there's movements from major denominations for their denominations to participate in BDS. I'm part of the United Church of Christ as well as Disciples because we're cousins. Um, and the UCC um, was a couple years ago at the, at the um, national level decided to be a part of this BDS um, movement. And so both of these are very complex. And my learning... yes. Okay, so that means um, to financially pull all resources out of companies that are funding the occupation is the so like Caterpillar um, is one of the primary companies that people talk about a lot. You can go ahead. Yeah. So um, um, one of the challenges is that um, boycott, divestment, sanction—it's a non-violent way of protesting Israeli policies. Um, in many cases, it's not restricted to activities in the territories, but is, is applying to, um, um, it's, 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 you know, it's applying to all Israelis, um, you know, and all Israeli activity throughout the world and is a source of, of actually a lot of harassment and oppression of, of, of Jewish students on university campuses. So, I mean, we could go on on this forever, so I'll, I'll kind of, <laughs> um, so the, the complexity is that as Christians, we have this history that we, we've been a part of this, you know, from the beginning, post-World War II and before, if you, if you read and understand the history of, um, the territory, that history is there. And then our two response, or I guess I would say our three responses are either, you know, Jesus will come back when the Jews all go to Israel. So let's get all the Jews back to Israel or, we are singular, singling out um, Israel when, look around the world, there are a lot of oppressive governments and a lot of oppressive um, people and leaders, and no one gets the same level of attention or, um, you know, that uh, passion from Christians as Israel. And so there's that like complexity. And in my relationships with my, with rabbi friends, um, really understanding the deep personal commitment to the land, um, has been moving for me and something that's so different than we don't really have that as Christians. Most of my Christian friends, some people are like, yes, we should go to the Holy land. It's not the same. And most of us don't have that same level of commitment, um, to the land that there's, there's this complexity. So, our reactions are one, two, or just say, it's not about us, it's about Jews and Muslims, so I'm not going to deal with it. Um, those are our three options on the table most often. So my, my learning through my relationships has been what would it look like for us to actually be in solidarity um, with our Jewish friends and family and loved ones who are troubled and want a better way forward, what does it look like to actually be in solidarity and say, how can we support each other in moving toward mutual liberation and thriving? And how do you critique your government, your, your brother from within, um, without me coming in and telling you how to do it? Because Christians have a long history of going in and telling people how to do things. And I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> 
Um, and that's kind of been our fallback. And so what does it look like to change our way? And honestly, I'm going to name that also we have similar things in Africa um, with the ways that we're critiquing African governments for their treatment of LGBTQ people, um, which is deeply troubling. And guess where they got that treatment? They got it from Christian missionaries who came in and told them how to demonize LGBTQ people. And then Christians are coming in and saying, wait, don't demonize LGBTQ people now that they've like fully embraced this. So, you know, it's complex and we need to own our role and learn how to be in solidarity and move toward mutually liberational relationships. Okay. <laughs> that was, I got it all solved. There, so. Okay. This is a loaded topic with a lot of tension, of course. Um, so myself, I uh, went for about a month to um, Israel, to Jerusalem the last two years, and I studied in a Jewish institute, um, Zionism, the state of Israel, um, um, and Judaism. So under um, a Zionist organization, basically, I studied Judaism there and Zionism. Um, so before I went, when I heard the word Zionism, um, and many Muslims uh, affiliate this, um, think the same way still today, Zionism, when Muslims hear that, um, I generalize here, they think it is a conspiracy worldwide that is behind oppressing Muslims. Um, so I went to Israel um, and I studied Zionism and Judaism there. What I learned for myself is there, there is a Zionism that I have a problem with and there's a Zionism I don't have a problem with. What I want to say with that is Zionism is a spectrum. Zionism is not one. There is a liberal Zionist movement. There is right-wing Zionists as well. So my personal perception or what the thing that I learned about Zionism is that the Jewish people are a people that have been oppressed and persecuted for 2,000 years. And there was this concept of the passive Jew. There, you are not allowed to go back to your homeland, fight for your homeland, or do anything for your homeland. It is, needs to be given by God to you. And then this Zionist movement um, started and where they said, we have to take action. I mean, we have to be active. We have to do something to liberate ourselves. And so people went and, um, in the Zionist movement and they were part of the, um, the creation of the state of Israel. Um, I personally don't have a problem with the existence of the state of Israel. I have a problem with the occupation and um, the oppression that I have seen and witnessed um, there. Israel is a beautiful country. Um, I met many, many beautiful people, many beautiful rabbis and scholars and um, people um, who are actually in Israel and against the oppression, against the, um, the occupation. And um, so I, to talk about the occupation is simple, but to witness the occupation is something completely different. I mean, it is heartbreaking. You could sit and cry there, looking at, looking at the people, what they are um experiencing during occupation. We went to Hebron. What is, the, what is ground zero of occupation? This is the place where Prophet Abraham's grave is. This is the place where Muslims, Christians, and Jews, they look at this place because Prophet Abraham is there. Prophet Abraham is the father recognized by all three Abrahamic traditions. And you see that you cannot walk outside without seeing Israeli soldiers with armed, I mean, armed and standing and protecting homes with Israeli flags. Um, unfortunately, 
Israelis go in there and they occupy the houses of others. Um, this is heartbreaking. Um, you also see that if you have a house that is occupied a Jewish person, they get every day running water. You see Palestinians, Christians, and Muslims, they don't get every day running water. You see a section, for instance, East Jerusalem, if you see the infrastructure, it is terrible. You see the waste outside. Even though people in East Jerusalem pay their taxes to the state of Israel, they don't get the same services as people in West Jerusalem who are Jewish. Even when you, if you go to East Jerusalem, which is more or less majority Muslim and Christian, there is um, Jewish settlements. If you go there, you will see that the Jewish settlements have a very good infrastructure. But you will, you will see that Muslims and Christians don't have the same infrastructure. But I have to add, on the Muslim side or on the Palestinian side, you can see a lot of corruption as well. It is not that they are completely oppressed and they do everything right. You see that the Palestinian leaders are completely corrupt. They go around the world. They collect money to build settlements and refugee camps in Palestine, in, in the West Bank. They don't do anything. The money goes into their pockets and the people suffer even more. Um, so you see on the Palestinian side that there is a lot of issues as, as well. You see um, Hamas in Gaza, for instance. I'm not a fan of Hamas. They, they do terrorist activities. They bomb Israel. They, um, they threw rockets over into Israel, which is wrong. You cannot justify that as a Muslim. And this is a right-wing uh, Muslim organization that identifies as Muslim. So it's wrong. Um, I, I condemn that as well. But on the, at the same time, what Israel is doing by mass punishing people Yes, there is terrorist activities in Gaza. They threw rockets over. But you cannot mass punish people. If you see the damage that they cause in, in Gaza, it's incredible. I mean, I, sh I, I watched a documentary about kids in Gaza. Um, they say their biggest dream is to become a martyr, to die for the cause of liberating this place. Because they don't have anything else. They have been living their li all their life under occupation. I mean, Gaza is not just occupation. It, it is isolated from the rest of the world. Um, you enter the West Bank, for instance, which is not Gaza. You, you have internet access on your Wi-Fi. You go into the West Bank, it goes down to G2 or G3. So it, it's very slow, basically. Your internet goes down because the state of Israel controls that. Um, I think this has to change. And I don't want to offend my Jewish friends, but this is what I have witnessed and seen by the state of Israel and... Um, and um, yeah, okay. Two things. First of all, everything you say is true. No offense. I am, I am just as offended as you are. And as Amanda said, it's complicated because, um, you know, for the reasons I've already said, I'm not going to say it again. Um, now, here we are, three religious leaders, and you've asked us about Zionism. Um, and here we are living in a country that has yet to, um, as a society, um, um, confront and heal and make reparations for the hundreds of years of the slavery of people of color. And we haven't addressed that. Um, the and genocide so, of Native and, and, and so, you know, so the premise that we should talk about Zionism, but we shouldn't talk about that, that we don't have a responsibility, I, th I think is anti-Semitic. 
Um, it, it's putting, it's putting, you know, it's not that Jews don't have a responsibility for what's happening. We do. And I, and everything that Amanda and Ishmael said, there's nothing they said that I disagree with. And, um, and, but if that's all we're talking about, I mentioned to bed earlier, we should, you know, we are responsible for what our country is doing with respect to, you know, the oppression that we are, we are the recipients. We, we are, you know, that we are standing on the shoulders of that oppression, the oppression of the genocide of, of, of Aboriginal peoples and the, um, and the enslavement of African Americans, which resulted in a huge transfer of wealth, um, to, um, to people of, you know, most of, uh, I think almost all of us, not all of us, but most of us, um, um, are white. And, and so, you know, that's, that's a faith, you know, um, climate, I mean, you know, um, this is something that is bigger than any tradition in any country. And, um, we're, you know, um, it's an existential crisis, um, you know, for our planet. And, you know, we haven't addressed any of that. We're addressing Zionism. So, yes, design, is, is, are, are, there, are there implementations of the Jewish right to self-determination that are oppressive, that are causing in, enormous suffering um, and, and terrible injustice? Absolutely. But if that's, that's the only, you know, kind of um, source of injustice in this world that we're going to talk about, then I think we need to... Um, be suspicious of the, uh, you know, of, of, um, we need to, we need to be suspicious of why that is. Um, so, um, you know, there's a kind of thing like, you know, there, there, there's, there's a, um, there's a, um, there's an expression, it's called whataboutism. So if somebody says, Israel, Israel, and, he's, and, and so someone says, well, what about Tibet? Or what about, you know, you know, Uganda or something like that? Or what about the United States? It's like, it's a way to, de- so people use that, and often Jews use that as a way to deflect appropriate critique of, you know, of, 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 of the disease side of Jewish nationalism called Zionism. But um, at the same time, as 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 Amanda said, it's easy to like point, like you know, it's easy for people, um, you know, for white people, for Christian people, to point at at minorities and say, "You guys got to get your, you know, got to get your act together." And so I just, you know, I'm 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 I welcome the I welcome the challenge of talking about Zionism, and I I object to um, the discussing of Zionism at the expense of talking about these other things that we are equally um, or even more so complicit in collectively. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree, and I appreciate all of your responses. Yep. Our, our Christian tradition that I've come from, I mean, Jesus talks about taking the plank That's out of your own eye, yeah. but we're always doing this. Yeah. Yeah. So I have, we only have time for maybe two more questions. If, you didn't, if, they, if they did not get to your question... You guys will probably hang around during lunchtime at least, and you, half the group's going to eat lunch, the other half's going to be in line to talk to you all. <laughs> so, uh, Ishmael, you had mentioned Hebron and um, Abraham, so I, I think this is this important because, you know, we have, in our Christian tradition, we used to sing, Father Abraham had many sons, and we forget that those many sons come from these three traditions here. So how do you, you are all parents, and we have parents out here, and those who aren't parents, you're still raising up the next generation. We all are responsible for that. How do you talk to children who are so young and hope-filled about uh, Father Abraham and these many sons, knowing <laughs> what we know today. How do, yeah, you're, this is a very practical parental question. So this might be a selfish question, by the way. 
Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> I think it's an important question. Yeah. It's an Moving important question. Yeah, it's an important question, and um, I need help with that as well. So I don't have all the answers. Um, so I have. We have three daughters, three girls at home, um, twelve, eight, and four. Um, and one is going into puberty and um, asking a lot of questions about religion, the purpose of life, and so on. Um, Prophet Abraham is a very important person, figure um, in the Islamic tradition because he had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Um, Isaac, the father of the Jewish people, if you will, and Ishmael, the father of the Arabs. And, um, and Prophet Muhammad is a descendant of um, Prophet um, Ishmael. Um, Muslims regard him as the father of all these traditions. If I talk to my daughter and I try to exp- daughters and I try to explain that, um, we we call, for instance, the Jewish people our cousins because of this concept. So they are related to us. They might be believing differently in certain things, but we are way more same than different. There is nothing bad in being Jewish or Christian or being part of any other tradition. All have their uniquenesses and we have our differences and I try not to talk to my daughters about the big issues that we are facing in in the world um, I mean it was a tragedy for instance when that girl a few weeks back um, committed suicide I mean it's, it's hard for a 12 year old girl to understand that what's happening so there's a lot going on already in the world and then talk about the complexities and the issues between religions would even make their lives uh, more difficult um, it's a challenging question. It's a challenging um, concept, I think, for um, parents to talk about um, the religions themselves because on the one hand side, you don't want to um, um, I mean, indoctrinate them with a certain belief or so. You want to give them the freedom. But as a Muslim, I believe that my religion is a, a good path, the right path, and I wouldn't want to give that on to my children. So I try to um, focus on the values as a Muslim and um, compare the values of Muslims to other religions um, that they can um, choose from and pick from. And there, there is things that we can learn as a Muslim. I can learn from the Christian tradition, values that I can learn from there. The, the concept of love is way more um, emphasized today in the t- Christian tradition than you see in the Muslim world, for instance. And um, I try to give that on to my daughters. Um, I don't know if this answer is satisfying you because it is challenging. And, uh, we are struggling every day with this answer, uh, with these questions. So, so much. <laughs> um, so I love this. And I, I think that it comes back to me, the embodied piece as well, that um, one, modeling it, that our, our kids see us. And so when they see us have friendships and relationships and and curiosity um, about different religious traditions that they will pick that up. I'm trusting mine are 13, 15 and 17 and they're very 13, 15 and 17. So (laughs) we're like in the thick of it. But I I think that one of the ways that I, I hope we'll see that we're, I'm planting seeds for this is, um, Ishmael invited, uh, our family to, um, celebrate Eid a couple years ago at his home. And so my kids all got to meet Ishmael and his wife and their children and, and share a meal. And, 
uh, those are memories that that stay with them. And then Ishmael just had two extra tickets to the Nuggets game the other night, and and knew that my son loves basketball and. Uh, text me and my my son and my husband go and my son knows Ishmael gave him tickets to the Nuggets game so Ishmael when, you and me by the way I know. <laughs> yeah. so it, like they have these associations they know Iman um, Judah they know that she's my good friend and they wonder is she engaged yet is she how are things like they know about her personal life and her and they're going to be my middle one's going to travel with her this summer to her trip that she leads to the Middle East. And we've been to a Passover dinner at when Rabbi uh, Karen was here in town. We, um, They've been to meals and dinners and, and people's homes. And, and it takes intentionality is my experience. It's very, very easy to isolate ourselves with people who look like us and think like us and worship like us. And, and so the way that I hope that my kids see this, Dilpreet's in the back. My kids love Dilpreet. What did I say? They were, we were, (laughs) we were in New York city and, and there was a police officer with a turban and they said, look, he's sick. Mm -hmm. And they said, Dilpreet's sick. We love Dilpreet. Mm -hmm. And I was like, associations that kids draw um, from their experiences. So making sure that they experience proximity, bodily proximity to people with different religious experiences and beliefs and lives. So I want to add something to the biblical reference you made about Abraham and at least other parts of the, of, of, of the Jewish patriarchal and matriarchal family being buried in Hebron. Um, the book of Genesis is filled with siblings who, who are separated, who, are, who, who, who have you know, existential conflicts. And, um, but it's not just about the separation. There are little hints about what it takes. Um, and, and so in the 25th chapter of Genesis, it says that Abraham died and his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him together. Um, and so I think you can take this story in two ways. Does it take for your father to die before you can reconcile with your sibling? What does it take? You know, but then the other thing is like, so what does have to die? What do we need to bury for, um, for something to move forward? Um, pride, ego, um, really learning how to walk humbly with one's God. Um, so, um, you know, there's another saying that Hillary Clinton loved to quote. Um, I think she even wrote a book to this effect. It takes a village. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so the question is, so, I mean, this, I'm going to give, you know, my own version of the same answer that Amanda gave, um, that, um, it takes, you know, so, so who's your village? So on the one hand, you know, my wife and I, you know, we're passionate Jews. We love Judaism and we want to, you know, it's, it was really important to us to raise a, a strong, you know, um, daughter who, you know, who, who felt, you know, who really like, you know, took on, you know, with pride and joy, you know, the richness of, of, of Jewish spirituality. And, and she did. But from that place, we also had 
you know, lots of people in our home. Um, you know, lots of, you know, you know um, and, and, and people who we wanted to, you know, you bring people into your home who you, you, you want your child to look at and see as alternative models to you. You know, you know, because sometimes, you know, as you are experiencing right now, and maybe you are as well, my daughter's 22, so she's a little bit past that stage, but um, that there are times when you can't have that conversation with your child, but they need to have it. And so if you, there's an, another adult in their lives who they trust, then they can have it with them. And many of those people were people who are of other faith traditions than Judaism. And so she has loving, trusting, deep, you know, relationships of gratitude and affection. Um, and, and so that's just natural to her. Um, you know, we had to work at it. it you know, it, it wasn't obvious to us, but it's natural to her. Um, and I think it's a lot more natural to a lot of people in her generation. Um, and it's becoming increasingly natural to us. Um, and um, so... We have 12 questions left. Oh, my gosh. I'm, just, I'm not kidding. <laughs> One but yet it's, 12, you know, it's 1230, and we need to honor the time because after we have lunch, we're going to have three other faith traditions come up and do the same thing. So I will, uh, I'm going to ask you all, uh, if you could do this, I'm going to have a sheet of paper over here, entry-level books, resources that people can read that you highly recommend according to your faith tradition. And we'll just put that over there. So those throughout the rest of the day, you can go by and maybe write that down as well. Initiative 300, we didn't get to. Damn it. Sorry. Yeah, it was was a question. I know I wanted to get there. Yes. But we don't. (laughs) And let's see here. Dignity. Let's give these three a great round of applause. So here's what's going to happen next. Uh, the table, Craig Brook is outside with uh, some other volunteers making lunch. Uh, we are on social media, by the way, at Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram and Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. Uh, throughout the day, if maybe there's a quote from one of the speakers or a thought that you have, uh, please post that, tag us, and then hashtag, it's ailed pound sign, ailtruist, A-L-E, truist. Just hashtag that and tag Brew Theology when you post your stuff. Thanks for joining us for the discussion. Stay on the lookout for two more podcasts from this Altruist event, where we will continue with the afternoon sessions and hear from the Buddhist, Hindu, and Sikh traditions. Cheers!